Friends, keep your Bible open. Uh, my name's Chris. I'm the Church at 630 Minister. If I haven't met you before, I hope you're enjoying your time with us. We're going to spend some time thinking through um, a big question tonight because we've been going through a series of big questions. Thinking about um, uh, in our changing society, what are some big questions that matter to people? And also, how might we um, engage with the people that God has put in our life? And today, it's the moral question. Is there such thing as right and wrong? So you'll be happy to know that there is such a thing as right and wrong and we can all go home. Uh, No, but seriously, uh, tonight we'll be looking at this question and thinking about how do we determine what is right and wrong in our world? You see, there is nothing more authentic than the moral outrage of a four-year-old. My son, Ridley, who's four years old, uh, he loves to dress himself and he hates it when anyone else helps him. So every morning, Ridley and I get in this battle of moral outrage. I want to do the right thing and help him. He wants to do the right thing by himself and let no one else happen. Uh, But the truth of the matter is, is that he... It's not there. Okay. Okay. There was a very humorous photo of him with his underpants on his head. I'm terribly sorry. You're going to have to miss that. Um, Yeah. Hopefully we've got the right slides up for the rest of the sermon. Uh, We'll see how that goes. And so um, uh, because there is nothing more authentic than the moral outrage. There we go. Uh, Yes, just like his father. Um, uh, There's nothing more authentic than the moral outrage of a four-year-old. But moral outrage isn't just something that children experience. We as adults experience it as well. So think about Black Lives Matter, the Me Too movement, climate change, uh, the issues that we faced as a pandemic. Uh, America last year when those people stormed the Capitol building, moral, there there was an increase of moral outrage people figuring out how to do, uh, how to determine right and wrong uh, and that their point mattered most. Um, So tonight we're going to ask the question, how do you determine right or wrong? In 1966, Time magazine had this famously on their cover, Is God Dead? Uh, It was a celebration that in the 60s, that because of the sexual revolution that they had um, released themselves from the shackles of um, the morals that God imposes on them, uh, and therefore they were free to choose to do what they like. They were free to do right and wrong as they decided. What's really interesting is uh, the quote, Is God Dead?, comes from a German philosopher called Friedrich Nietzsche, uh, and it's not a celebration, it's actually a lament. He says this, God is dead and we have killed him. How shall we comfort ourselves, the murderer of all murderers? We, must we simply ourselves not become gods, simply to appear worthy of it? Later on, a couple of years later, he would write that um, when one gives up on God, one pulls the rug of morality out from under their feet. That is, Nietzsche was never disappointed to get rid of God, but he did lament that if you get rid of God, you get rid of objective truth. And if you get rid of objective truth or the objective truth giver, you get rid of objective right and wrong. 
which means that you and I are then burdened with the task of how do we actually figure out what's right and wrong um, in this world? I mean, why, why should we care about Black Lives Matter? Why should we care about the Me Too movement? Why should we care about climate change? Now, I realise I've just opened up a whole can of worms there, and I'm not going to enter any of those, actually. Uh, but what, uh, So feel free to chuck some stuff on Slido. But what I am going to help us to think through is how do we, in a world that claims that there is no God, how do we determine what's right and wrong? We're going to do this three ways. We're going to think about the darkness of this world. We're going to think about, secondly, um, the lights, the other lights that we as humans have created. And then finally, we'll look at the unique one true light of Jesus. So first point, uh, the profound darkness in this world. If you've got your Bible, open it up to John chapter 8. Have a look at verse 12 with me. Verse 12, Jesus spoke to them again, I am the light of the world. Anyone who follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So tonight we're in John chapter 8. John, John's gospel is written by an eyewitness to the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Uh, and chapter 7 and 8, they hold together as a unit. It's, it's, the similar, it's the same kind of event. What Jesus is doing is he's in the temple in Jerusalem. It's a festival called the Festival of Booths or Festival of Tents. And God's people are celebrating God's faithfulness as he rescued them out of Egypt and they got to sleep in booths or tents, right? Um, in the last night of that festival, it was called the Festival of Lights. And what they would do is they'd get these six-foot-high oil lanterns uh, and put them in every window in the courtyard of the temple. Now, remember, this is before electricity. So when they lit up the temple and all the light went out the windows of the temple, it meant that no matter where you were in Jerusalem you would see the light of the temple. Uh, and they would sing songs like Psalm 27, that God is the light of our salvation. Uh, and in that moment, in that place, at that time, Jesus stands up in front of the crowd and all the religious leaders and he says, I am the light of the world. It's quite provocative, isn't it? Uh, in John's writing, the word light represents truth. So Jesus is saying, I am the light of the world. I am the one who reveals the truth about God. And that's because, verse 12, we live in a profound darkness. If the light of the world is the truth of God, then the darkness is ignorance towards God. Our sinful hearts reject God and blinds us to seeing and knowing God. And so the Pharisees, rather than engage what Jesus is actually saying, they deflect. They try to cancel him out. You see, in Jewish culture, you need two or more witnesses to back up any testimony in a court of law. So they attack him and try to discredit him. The claims that he makes, well, he's the only one making them. So surely, Jesus, you can't be right about this thing, about being the light of the world. But Jesus throws it back to them. So Jesus says, I'm not the problem. No, you're the problem. And then he gives them three reasons why they can't see the truth. So we're going to go through them quickly. Get your Bibles open. Have a look at verse 14. Verse 14, 
Jesus says, even if I testify about myself, Jesus replied, my testimony is true because I know where I came from and know where I'm going. But you don't know where I came from or where I'm going. So the first reason why they can't see the truth is because they don't know that Jesus is God the Son sent into the world by the Father who will then ascend and go back to the Father's right-hand side. They don't trust his testimony because they don't know that the words that he is speaking are the very words of God. Second reason, have a look at verse 15. You judge by human standards, I judge no one. And if I do judge, my judgment is true because it's not I alone who judge, but I am the Father who sent me. So second reason they can't see the truth is because they judge according to human knowledge, human wisdom, human intellect, human standards. They don't know that Jesus's judgment is the judgment of God himself. Third reason, verse 19, they ask him, where is your father? Uh, he's a grown adult at this time, so just say, <laughs> where is your father? Jesus says, you know neither me nor my father. Jesus answered, if you knew me, you would also know my father. In his final indictment to the religious leaders, they can't see the truth because they don't know who Jesus is and they don't know who God is. Now, here's my question. Uh, And this is a question I want to give to you to chat to the person next to you. How do the Pharisees determine what is right and what is wrong in this event? So I'm going to give you 30, uh, 60 seconds. Turn to the person next to you. Ask them, how do the Pharisees determine what is right and wrong here? Go. Okay, that's your 60 seconds. Please keep those conversations going over supper tonight. We've got supper after church. But I wonder what you said. Maybe you said it was because Jesus was being so provocative that they didn't believe what he said, uh, that they determined what is right or wrong. Or or maybe it was because um, uh, of the way that Jesus was dressed. Maybe he wasn't dressed appropriately. Or maybe you think it's just the vibe of the whole thing, right? Just really wasn't feeling it. I don't know. This like Jesus isn't really being authentic right now and that just doesn't go well with me. The truth is, is that the darkness of their hearts and their ignorant and their ignorance towards God has caused them to reject Jesus. And Jesus has already told us this. Remember verse 12? I am the light of the world. And anyone who follows me will never walk in darkness, which means people who don't follow Jesus are still walking in darkness. The problem is not with Jesus. The problem is with them. They use categories of their culture to judge who Jesus is. They use the truth of this world to judge the truth of God, which means they're only judging by human standards. But if they were to humble themselves, if they were to listen to Jesus and take his words seriously, then they would see who Jesus truly is. And it's the same with us, that if we were to humble ourselves and to listen to Jesus and to take his words seriously, then we would see who Jesus truly is. You know, the great tragedy in John 8 is that people, these religious leaders, who have spent their whole lives 
trying to know and love and serve God have fallen short. They've relied on their own judgments and they've got it wrong, which is a warning to us. Even though you and I know God, love God and serve God, we are not immune from making this same mistake. So friends, can I ask, where do you get your criteria of truth? Or better yet, how do you determine what's right or wrong? Do you use the truth of this world to judge the truth of God? Or do you let God speak for himself? You know, when we use, our own, when we use the standard, the, the categories of culture, or even our own inward standards of right and wrong, um, we, uh, we're in danger of, well, simply not seeing something for tr- what it truly is and rejecting it. Um, we call this moral re- relativism. Um, and this is our second point, the many lights that we've created. Uh, relativism is the belief that there's no universal truth, really subjective, uh, really popular, really postmodern. And moral rev- relativism is the belief that there's no universal right or wrong. It argues that right and wrong are true because of your particular standpoint. And no particular standpoint or culture or point in history is privileged enough to judge other people's right and wrong. Which means, in moral relativism, I get to decide what is right for me, and you get to decide what is right for you. Yeah? We call this, I do me, you do you. Yeah? Really authentic. Um, uh, and it means, we, re- we actually really like this, because it means that I get to sit in the driver's seat, and I get to look at the smorgasbord of truth, the smorgasbord of right and wrong, and I get to choose what is true for me and what is right for me, and you get to choose what's good for you. And this is how our secular Western society determines what's right and wrong. And so in doing this, in figuring out right and wrong without God, we actually create different lights, if you will, to try and figure out what's right and wrong. And so, I mean, one of the most popular ones is the natural order. That is, the natural order and the uh, giving us right and wrong. So the logic flows like this. The natural order would say that there is nothing wrong with a lion killing a zebra. It's just survival of the fittest, yeah? And so if that's the case, um, humans, we're just highly developed forms of animal life, which means... There is nothing wrong with humans killing zebras. There's nothing wrong with a dentist taking annual leave to go on safari and shoot a bunch of zebras because um, humans are just highly developed forms of animal life, which also means there's nothing wrong with any form of human violence. Human hurting human is not wrong. It's just survival of the fittest. You see, this thinking... Uh, gets used when people make arguments for sexuality based around the penguins at Taronga Zoo. Uh, This is the kind of thinking that people argue for gender transitions based on clownfish. That is, we see things occurring in the natural order, and since we are just highly advanced animals in the natural order, then we are free to do these things as well. But the logic of that falls short 
because it is wrong for a human to cause violence to another human, yeah? Like you would be outraged if someone hurt you physically. It's wrong for an adult to cause violence to another adult. It's wrong for an adult to cause violence to a child. These things are wrong. And so we can't look to the natural order to give us our right and wrong. I think the other thing that's popular that we do today is that we define right and wrong solely based on what harms. Now, I want to be clear here that when we do categorise right and wrong, we need to keep harm and flourishing. Um, sorry, we need to keep harm in that mix, in that category. But in the complexity of our discussions of what's right and wrong, there's a danger that we reduce the discussion down to what harms is what is wrong, full stop. The difficulty with that is who determines what is harmful? Um, Tim Keller in in a tweet said exactly that. The common moral framework, do anything as long as it does no harm to others, problem Whose definition of harm? And whose definition of flourishing? So what if the thing that that helps me to flourish in the world is the thing that does you harm? Or what if the thing that does does me harm is the thing that helps you to flourish? What it becomes is a a slippery slope. That is, uh, truth and right and wrong erode from us because it's based on on subjectivity on how we feel and what we think and what we deem, what I deem harms me. So we actually can't have a definitive right and wrong if harm is what we use. Uh, and so uh, this idea, this moral relativism, this no universal right or wrong, uh, you do you and me do to me, falls down in practice. You see, it's one step towards moral anarchy because each person is free to decide good and evil for themselves. So picture this. a couple of uh, uh, During the pandemic in the UK, you may have read of this or heard about this in the news, um, during lockdown in 2020, Boris Johnson, the Prime Minister of uh, the UK, had a party at his place at 10 Downing Street with, a, with about 100 people in the middle of lockdown. A couple of weeks ago, they actually um, investigated this. One um, member of parliament stood up and said, why does Boris Johnson get to have a party in his place with 100 people and I can't go to the funeral of my uncle? You see, what's happening there is, again, we're seeing that uh, people are deciding what's right and wrong for themselves free to decide good and evil. Uh, It ends up being chaos. It's chaotic as well because it reminds us of Genesis 3. Remember Genesis 3? The the, the primal temptation in the garden narrative is for Adam and Eve to redefine good and evil based on their own heart and the temptation that they face rather than what God said was good and evil. And so this happens is, well, when this happens, we decide right and wrong. So rather than denying ourselves and obeying God, We obey ourselves and we deny God. Everyone is free to choose what they will. 
Second, it also means that there's no moral absolutes. You can't make moral universal statements if everyone gets to choose their own right and wrong. So think about this statement. Men and women are equally valuable. All races deserve equal dignity. They are universal and absolute statements, but they don't come from inside of us. You see, the idea that men and women are equal comes from Genesis 1.27. It comes from how God has created this world, that God has decided that both men and women are made in his image. Racial equality and black lives matter doesn't come from this feeling inside of us. It comes from Genesis 1.27, that all of humanity, regardless of race, is made in God's image. But if I decide what is right and wrong... It is me and my feelings that get to decide. We can't have universal statements or absolute right and wrong. You see, ultimately, just like the Pharisees in John chapter 8, we are using the wisdom of the world to determine what is God's truth, what is right and wrong. And the problem with that is twofold. First, it's a burden. I mean, If you are required to figure out what is right and wrong for you in your life, that will be a burden under which weight you can't sustain yourself. As you go through different seasons of life, different places where you live and different jobs, friendship groups, families, trying to figure out what's wrong and what is right for yourself, trying to be authentic to that truth gets exhausting. And secondly, we were never meant to do that. That's because our heart is like a moral compass. Uh, Okay, so, easy question. What uh, uh, what, um, direction is a compass designed to point? North, well done. Okay, Uh, second question. Uh, If a compass is broken, what direction does it point? Well, any other direction. And so God has created our heart so that it would point us towards him, that we would know him, love him, and serve him, that we would determine right and wrong based on our creator, the sovereign Lord. But sin has broken our compass. So instead of pointing us towards God, it points us towards ourselves. So rather than um, having us know and love and serve God, we know ourselves, we seek to know ourselves, we seek to love ourselves, and we seek to serve ourselves. That is... Because of the darkness of this world and our sinful hearts, we believe we can choose right and wrong. But because of our sinful hearts, we will get that wrong. You see, moral relativism doesn't work. When we are left to decide what is right or wrong, we make a mess of things. We see this in Western society today, that Western society has not become more moral because we have determined what's right and wrong. What's left is, is moral confusion. So people disagree with one another. People get morally outraged, yeah? Uh, people, uh, and people aren't good at talking about it. We don't, we're not very good at having reasonable discussion because when you disagree with me, I feel like you're attacking me. And so what do I do? Well, I either vent on, the, on Facebook or I get my other friends around me who agree with me, uh, either in a chat room or real life, and, and we argue against you. And this escalates going back and forth. And we have moral outrage and neither one of us actually knows what's right or wrong. 
We live in the darkness and we need someone outside of our system to teach us what's right and wrong. We need light. And what did Jesus say he was? The light of the world. Um, Which is our final point, the one true light. Uh, Have a look at verse 12 with me again. Chapter 8. Jesus spoke to them again, I'm the light of the world. Anyone who follows me will never walk in darkness, but have the light of life. Remember, Jesus is standing in the temple during the festival of lights on that final night, and he says, I am the light of the world. Notice, he doesn't say, I will lead you to the light. He doesn't say, I am one of the many lights that you can choose from. He doesn't say, God is the light. He says, I am the light of the world, a definitive and unique claim that only he can make, that he is the one true light that reveals to us the truth about God. And so Jesus wants to know us three things, just quickly. First, who he is. In Zechariah 14, God promises his people that the day of the Lord will be a day of light. He says in Zechariah, the prophet Zechariah says in chapter 14, verse 6, that on that day there will be no night, no cold, no frost, which is kind of nice in orange. Uh, The sunlight and moonlight will diminish, but there will be light in the evening. Verse 9, and on that day the Lord will become king over the whole earth, the Lord alone and his name alone. So when Jesus says, I am the light of the world, he's revealing who he truly is, that he is the Lord of the heaven and earth, that he created all things and through his, um, his being, all things exist and have life. Which means uh, if he is the Lord of heaven and earth, he has a right to say what is right and wrong in this world. Second thing Jesus wants us to know is what he brings. Uh, in John's gospel, like I said before, the word light means truth. So God, uh, Jesus reveals the truth of God and gives us guidance. Jesus reveals the character of God. He preaches about the kingdom of God so that we can have confidence that God is real and we can know his way is true because he stepped into human history so that we would know God. And third, Jesus wants us to find salvation in him. When Jesus says, I am the light of the world, it comes with an invitation, doesn't it? I am the light of the world. Anyone who follows me will never walk in darkness, but have the light of life. You see, Jesus lived a perfect life without sin. And so when his blood was shed on the cross, he was making the payment for our sin. But he didn't stay dead. Three days later, he rose again, declaring that he had defeated sin and death. So that when we ask God to forgive us of our sin, God can freely do that because the punishment has already been taken. When Jesus says, I am the light of the world, it's an invitation to find life and forgiveness in Jesus Christ because that can be found in no one else. So Jesus says, I am the light of the world. He is the Lord. He reveals the truth about God and he brings salvation. Which means that Nietzsche got it wrong. Remember the Time magazine picture that I showed at the beginning? God is dead. Well, that's actually wrong. No, God is not dead. God has been resurrected and ascended to the right hand of the Father. Jesus is alive. God is alive and he has revealed himself to us through his son Jesus. 
But ironically, Jesus didn't die on the cross to make you a more moral person. Jesus didn't die on the cross so that you could be a better version of your person and do more right than wrong. Jesus went to the cross so that you could have a relationship with God, so that you could know God intimately. And so we're saved by grace. Jesus reveals the truth about God and welcomes us in through grace. You see, it's nothing that we do that earns us eternal life. It's no right or wrong that we might achieve that impresses God. It is simply by his forgiveness and his grace that we are welcomed in. That is, we do not trust what I do, but what Jesus has done on my behalf. Just quickly, how does this apply to our lives? I think two areas. The first, if Jesus is the light of the world, it means we shouldn't be afraid to live in that light. In his word, Jesus helps us to uh, think through what is right and wrong and how we should live in this world, but we should never be afraid of it. Uh, We should never be um, uh, afraid that uh, it might change us or transform us. Because when we humbly come to Jesus and listen to what he says and take his word seriously, he, by his spirit, will transform us to live the way that God wants us to live. So we shouldn't be afraid to live right and wrong according to God, but neither should we be ashamed of it. You see, God has put people in our life so they can hear the good news of Jesus, so they can see what difference it makes in our life. And as people, we like to be built up, not cut down. We like comfort and security, and we don't really like being put out there. And the temptation is, sometimes we can think that the truth I believe is different for other people, and therefore it might cause harm to them. But we should never be ashamed of what Je- the life that Jesus calls us to live. If Jesus truly is the light of the world, he reveals the truth of God to us, and so we shouldn't be ashamed of what God calls us to live. The problem is not what the Bible teaches. The problem is not with Christianity or Jesus. More often than not, the the problem is, for people like you and I, is that we let culture shape our minds to determine what's right or wrong. Or we listen to our hearts to figure out what's right or wrong. And the good news is that's not a burden we need to carry. Because Jesus is the light of the world. And anyone who follows him will not walk in darkness but find the light of life. So how about I pray that God would help us to do that. Let's pray. Heavenly Father and gracious God, we thank you that you have not left us alone in the dark, but that you have revealed yourself to us in your son Jesus and through your word. And so, Lord, we pray that you would help us to listen to Jesus' words and take his claims seriously. Help us to see that he is uh, your son, the revealer of truth. And, Lord, cultivate us in us a heart that would desire to walk in the light of life, that we would not be afraid to live his way, nor would we be ashamed to live it out in public, Lord. We pray that you do this, not for our glory, but your glory alone, in Jesus' name. Amen.